Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. We spent much, much of last year there, and we're, I'll have you return to chapter 1 with me this morning, and we'll look at some other passages as well. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you'd pass those to the center aisle, uh, we'll collect them and pray for you this week. We're so glad that you're here if you're visiting with us and uh, want to be a church that prays for one another. So we spent much of last year in Romans, and I thought before we re-engage, uh, beginning in chapter 4, that we would maybe take a, a moment to, to reflect on the truths presented in Romans uh, 1 through 3. We took a break for Christmas and had some other challenges from God's Word. Um, and this, this epistle written by the Apostle Paul is really his magnum opus. It's his crowning work. It's a, his, the most profound of all of his letters and the message of Romans really roars through the centuries as a clarion word on the content and power of the, of the gospel. In fact, Swiss commentator Frederick Godot uh, pointed out that every, every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected with the teachings set forth in the book of Romans. Uh, the church father Augustine was saved uh, by reading the book of Romans. Martin Luther, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17. John Wesley, hearing the preface of Martin Luther's um, uh, preface to the book of Romans, was converted in a little chapel in London. My heart was strangely warmed, Wesley said, as I heard the truth of what God had done through his son, Jesus Christ. So if anyone wants a, a detailed account of the key truths of the Christian faith, there's no better book to consult than Paul's letter to the Romans. And so this morning, I want to provide an overview. You know I like to do that, taking a number of chapters and providing a panorama to see the big picture, and then we'll press on next week. Romans contains what we need most, what this world needs most, and that is to, to understand clearly what God has accomplished through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring redemption to a fallen race. It's an exclusive claim. Oh, yes, all are invited. All are called to, to come, whether you're Jew or Greek. But it's exclusive in that it's the only way to God. And that's what's offensive about Christianity to so many people. Uh, Christianity is not thrown into the potpourri pot of all the religions of the world as a meaningful contribution of what might come out of a search of religions. It is the way, it is the truth, it is the life, and Jesus said no one comes to the Father except through, through me. So Romans was written with this premise, without God's grace and life-giving power found in the gospel, we cannot please God on our own, nor can we live the life, a life that pleases Him in our own, on our own. So authentic Christianity is supernatural empowerment and a worldview that sees Him as reigning Overall, And so some fast facts on Romans that you're probably aware of. Who wrote it? Paul. That's the first word in the English version of verse 1. Paul is the undisputed writer of Romans. And as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, this became one of the most influential documents um, in, in history. To whom was it written? It was written um, as an introduction uh, to the church at Rome. Paul did not plant the church at Rome, so he's kind of an outsider. This is the longest introduction of his letters in the New Testament. 
And he was writing in order to develop a relationship with them, to outline the gospel for them. And it was written uh, probably around 55 to 58 uh, AD in the first century. And his purpose was really not only to give, make a doctrinal deposit in the church at Rome, but also to, uh, to explore them being a support for ministry that he wanted to accomplish in Spain, which he tells us about in Romans 15. So he's hoping both Jew and Gentile would be unified in the, for the purpose of sending Paul outward to the, uh, to the West for the cause of the gospel. So what is the message? Well, that's what I want to outline today for us. Let's begin in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And maybe we could hang this first point uh, with this statement. We are not ashamed, or are we? I think Romans challenges us in this way. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we like Peter who warmed his hands by the fire in denial of Christ? Do we love these truths? Paul made a declaration that he was not ashamed of the gospel. And it's really linked back to verse 15 where he said, I'm eager to preach to you the gospel. I want to come to you. I want to share uh, spiritual gifts with you. And, um, and I'm not ashamed of this message. He, Paul faced opposition throughout his ministry. He was stoned in Lystra. And I would think, you know, after being stoned, you would maybe move on to some other place where you wouldn't be stoned. Uh, he was stoned and got up and returned to the city for more ministry. In Philippi, he was beaten with rods. In Athens, he was mocked for declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Ephesus, he created a riot through his preaching. Not that he was inflaming people with violent threats. He was preaching the gospel to put down your idols. And he brought the silver shrine industry to their knees in Ephesus, which caused the riot. In Rome, he was placed under house arrest. What about us? What does a faithful witness look like in our generation? We have mockers abounding in our culture who are quite willing and eager to call you stupid for your faith. You believe in these old-fashioned myths and fairy tales um, where we're surrounded by arrogant people like Asaph in Psalm 73, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Christians from whatever generation have dealt with that is the world doesn't really value what we do when we gather together. But who cares? It's not about uh, garnering uh, uh, opinions from others. We gather to honor the Lord and to live out our faith, a culture that resists and balks at any moral judgments. Charles Spurgeon spoke of the downgrade in his, in his day, the downgrade of the church, the decline of spiritual health in the church. And he said, everywhere there's apathy. Wow, that was in the 19th century too? Everywhere there's apathy, Spurgeon said. Nobody cares whether that which is preached is true or false. A sermon's a sermon, whatever the subject. You want to talk about rock climbing? That would fit into the category. And then Spurgeon said, only the shorter, the better. And so, not really interested in being challenged with spiritual truth. Then there's pragmatism. Does it work? Which is fine if your car's broken or your sink leaks. You want to be pragmatic and you want to fix it. But that can become very dangerous when you're talking about moral judgments. What feels right to us? What works for us? We need something outside of ourselves to 
establish the boundaries. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. All other ground is sinking sand. So the gospel is the great exchange from our real shame, namely our sin for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The shame the world seeks to heap upon us because we're followers of Christ comes down to seeking the praise of our Savior over the applause of the world. It demands our full surrender. To follow Jesus Christ is a call to surrender. What? Well, it's a call to surrender my life to him. It's a call to follow him in obedience. It's a call to deny myself. It's a call to seek his kingdom first above all things. It's a call to walk in humility and obedience and gratitude and, uh, for all that he's done for me. Dustin Binge, I was taken by his comment uh, some months ago. Therapy offers suggestions Philosophy offers ideas, psychology offers diagnosis, counseling offers advice. Only Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, can liberate the soul. Amen for that. So we're not ashamed of the gospel. I pray that's true. And that we'll leave you here today saying, I want to make him known in my life. I want to make him known in the course of my life through the words that I say and the way I live my life. Secondly, the way forward is by faith in Jesus Christ. How can I be made right with God? Not the intuitive way, uh, the way in which most of life functions for us, namely, if you're gonna get a promotion, it's because you worked hard, usually. If you're gonna get an A in school, it's because you studied hard. If you're gonna get along in this world, it's because of your hard work, and we take that uh, intuitive instinct and observation in life, and we plug it into our thought, theology and say, well, that's the way I, I need to relate with God. The more I work, the more he's going to give me blessings. But that's not the way the gospel works. It's totally counterintuitive. It's not by works of righteousness, which I do, but according to his grace that he saves me. So notice in verse 17, for it's in the righteous... For it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's, that's been true all through the Bible, all through history. Who's made right with God? Well, Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and God counted it, it to him as righteousness. Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. This good news about God and what he's done in Jesus Christ is the best news imaginable. So by believing in Christ, an exchange occurs. I surrender, I acknowledge my sin, and there's an exchange for the righteousness that is in Jesus Christ that is imputed to me by faith. To be declared righteous by faith means I need to receive him personally and trust him personally for who he is and what he's done. And so all the promises of God become yes to me. Think about that. Believer, the way forward is Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes to you. Forgiveness, yes. Legal declaration that in the courtroom of heaven that you are indeed righteous because of your faith in Jesus Christ, yes. Adopted as a child, into God's forever family, yes. Union with Christ, yes. 
Answered prayer, yes. Join heir with Christ, yes. Possessor of eternal life, yes. Yes, yes, yes. You are not a pauper in him. You're a child of the king. It's the greatest news which is often at the bottom of the list. This gospel brings us to God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, anyone who thinks that he deserves heaven is not a Christian. (laughs) But for anyone who knows that he deserves hell, there's hope for you. Out goes all your self-righteousness. It is all by grace. So the gospel he says here in verse 17 is by faith from first to last. Faith, from faith, for faith. What does that mean? Well, it seems to parallel everyone who believes in the previous verse. So the idea here is from faith for, the idea is from faith to faith to faith to faith, as if Paul were singling out the faith of every individual believer. In every instance of your life, we trust him and believe in him. Notice with me thirdly, as we're looking at themes here in Romans, the God who's angry, and this is not for the faint of heart. Scripture presents him as the God who's angry. That's not all that Scripture says about him. But when it says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, that wrath of God is his anger towards sin. And that's an interesting word, wrath, It's a fearful word, but the idea behind it, the Greek word is orgy. What does an orgy have to do with the wrath of God? And I think it could be summed in a simple word, passion. That is, he's passionately against sin. It portrays wrath as something that builds up over a a long period of time, like water collecting behind a great dam, and then is released. God's wrath is not human anger. God's not the kind of God who just in a fury flies off the handle and punches a hole in the sheetrock. That's not the picture. It's like fruit ripening to the point of ultimately oozing. So God's wrath is not human anger. It's a holy hatred of that which contradicts his holiness, which we all share in common. For all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in chapter one, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, it's, it's hard to handle as Paul outlines the universal guilt of humanity in all of our brazenness. Apart from the grace of God, we stiffen our necks, we stiffen our lips, we have a brazen disregard and hatred for his ways and for his things. It is why a fallen humanity is at enmity with him. Jonathan Edwards said the unbeliever walks over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge. That's an indictment against us all. And God's wrath is the dominant theme in the Bible. And some people think, well, you know, when I get up before him, he's going to have some explaining to do. I've got some pretty airtight excuses and I got a case that I think is going to make it. 
It's like what R.C. Sproul said, modern man thinks that this is all there is. That's a bad bet. Modern, modern humanity is betting that this is all there is. That's a bad bet. No excuses. He says that through verses 19 through 32, and we chafe under this. We don't like it. We resent his holiness. One commentator explained, holiness is one of the greatest of all God's attributes, the, the only one that is properly repeated three times in Isaiah 6. We think of holiness as utterly, uh, utter righteousness, that God does no wrong, but holiness is more than that. The basic idea is separation, separated for God's purposes. And we're threatened by his knowledge. R.C. Sproul, in another um, comment, uh, once and uh, uh, er, er, early on uh, wrote a book called If There Is a God, Why Are There Atheists? And he talked about, on the one hand, we want people to look at us, to notice us. If they ignore us, we feel hurt. At the same time, if they look too long, we feel uncomfortable. We're embarrassed or upset because we're ashamed of who we are or do not want others to know us very well. If this is the case in our reaction to other people who never really know us deeply, even when they pry and who are sinners themselves, how much more traumatic is it to be known by a God who knows everything about us before whom all hearts are open, all thoughts and intents of our heart are known by him. This kind of exposure is more than we can handle. It's, it's uncomfortable and we're threatened by it and many hate him for it. So what are these top excuses to put off surrender to God? How come many are not interested in the gospel and yawn at the gospel? Some say, you know, I didn't know that God existed. Really? Uh, I didn't know that he existed. Can anyone really affirm that in face, the face of the evidence that we see around us in creation, that this universe was not created? I know there are deeper arguments involved with that, but on its face, just on its face, the heavens declare his glory and the sky declares his handiwork. I didn't know that he existed. There's, there's so many questions that are unanswered. Oh, that's true. But the issue here with regard to your response to the gospel is not all the answers you don't, all the questions you don't know the answers to. The issue with regard to God's revelation to you is how come you're not doing what he's revealed to you? And that's Paul's argument in chapter one. We take the creation, the revelation that God has given in general, and we twist these things and begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. The Bible's a flawed document. Really? Have you ever read it? Would be my first question. That's quite a claim. If you, it's a flawed document. Have you ever read it? For those who have and still believe that, just the internal testimony of the Bible, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. All scripture is God-breathed. But to look at the impact on the Bible, I know that we can't ultimately convince anybody of the, on the trust, trustworthiness of the Scripture. That's a work of the Spirit in their heart. 
I could say to you, this is the word of God and it is worth every ounce of energy you give to try to understand it and to believe it. Because that's exactly what I believe it is and would declare is. But ultimately, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And maybe from even this brief challenge, you would say, you know, I've never really read the Bible. I've dismissed it out of hand. I need to give some attention to it. I mean, after all, even on a, on a, um, uh, a cultural level, it's the bestseller year after year and is the chief document in influencing Western civilization, world history as we know it. So with all the evil in this world, here's another one. With all the evil in this world, another excuse. If God's good, why, do, why does he let it go on? Why does he let it go on? And so there are these intellectual, emotional barriers to, you know, God's, if he's good and he's all powerful, why does he let it go on? Mark Talbot, years ago, I listened to a lecture that he gave at a conference I attended, and he said, all the good that is ours in Christ, seeing God's gracious hand in the hurts uh, others do to us, how important that is to see that God is good even in times of suffering. First, we need to know what scripture says in general about God's relationship to evil. That he's made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So how can all of that come, come about? I, I think that's answered most powerfully in, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Where all of the evil surrounding the crucifixion from his treatment from the betrayals, from the mockery of justice that Herod and Pilate and the Jews were doing what they wanted to do, namely to crucify him. And all the while, God was accomplishing his redemption through the death of his son. So, Scripture is clear. Nothing arises, exists, or endures independently of God's will in this world. And he can be trusted Some just say, you know, I I just didn't think God was important. I just didn't have time for him. And so all of these responses to the gospel. Perhaps you've ignored God your whole life. It's not too late. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Maybe you haven't cared for the things of God. Maybe you haven't taken seriously the gospel message. I read some years ago a book by James Spiegel entitled The Making of an Atheist. And the subtitle was How Immorality Leads to Unbelief. The reason young people who go to college often check out of the Christian journey, and we see that in droves, is not because of the intellectual arguments. The arguments are not that strong. The arguments for Christianity are compelling. They check out because of the sin of immorality, Spiegel says, and then not know what to do with their guilt, not know how to do, what to do with their situation. A return to purity and obedience seems to be mission impossible in the climate in which they live. And so they don't know where to park their guilt. And so they decide to embrace their immorality and surround themselves with friends who will sanction it 
And from there, they build their whole theology or lack of it and worldview around their immorality and begin to say stupid things like, I don't believe the Bible anymore. I don't believe in the gospel anymore. There are many sincere beliefs that are equally legitimate and on and on it goes. But it's not because the arguments are stronger. It's because they love their sin. And so the gospel confronts that and we don't like that. But it does. And it says in Romans 1, God gave them up. He gave them up. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And so often when we think of the wrath of God, we think of eternal judgment But Martin Lloyd-Jones was certainly correct when he says, we tend to think that the wrath of God must manifest itself in the form of active punishment. But here we are reminded that sometimes it reveals itself just by allowing sin to thrive, which I would say we see very clearly before us now. So humanity in ruin. Humanity in ruin. The God who is angry, humanity, ruin, and that was the theme of chapter 3. He says in verse 4, look at Romans 3, 4. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That's powerful, isn't it? What does it mean to be a people of the truth in a culture of deception? What does it mean that God be true and every man a liar? Are we liars by nature? We are. I mean, Psalm 116 says that all men are liars. I mean, can you really honestly say you've never told a lie? That's a lie. There you have it. So what does it mean to be a people of the truth in a culture of deception? I think it means if the prevailing opinions and attitudes declare there's no God, We must insist that God is true and every man a liar. For God's word declares that we are created in his image and before him we live and move and have our being. If the majority opinion says it is permissible to kill a baby in the womb and provides a legal right to do so, we're compelled to say God has commanded you shall not murder. The Lord God has formed our inward parts and knitted each of us together in our mother's womb. Indeed, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If the culture divides along racial lines, we must say there's no partiality with God. We all come from one blood. Therefore, we should love our neighbor as ourself and strive for justice in our shared fallen world. We have come to see that true unity is found in Jesus Christ where all believers are one in him. If everyone in the world declares that fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and the agendas that champion these behaviors are good and right and loving, we must say with no malice, only compassion, God's word says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When the movers and shakers of this world insist that the number of genders is endless. 
and that marriage can be defined in a myriad of ways, then we must say God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, or him, male and female, he created them. The Lord God defined marriage in the context of creation between a man and a woman, and a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. If the false prophets of our day declare that there are many ways to God, we must stand on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and simply say that Christ is the way and the truth and the life and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I think that's at the heart of what it means to really embrace the gospel and really be committed to live for him in our generation. That God is true. We're going to follow that over the shifting opinions of this world. And as we follow chapter 3 onward, no one's righteous, not even one, verse 10 tells us. No one seeks after God. That's a hopeless situation. No one's righteous. What's the entrance requirement to heaven? I, I need to be righteous. But no one's righteous. What remedy can we find? And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ full circle. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. By faith in him, his righteousness is credited to us. That we might be received. He goes on to say in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. That's a powerful uh, word picture here. Worthless. In some ancient documents, uh, the Hebrew means to go bad. To become sour like milk. The crown of God's creation has gone sour like milk because we've gone our own way. Tim Keller wrote that unless you're willing to admit that you're at war with God, uh, you will never know how to surrender. And that's what Romans 1 through 3 is painting for us. It wasn't a fun year last year with regard to topics, was it? It was not. But I belabor the point because I think these are the truths that are, that are not received. If you think you're basically a good person and that you're right with God and that Jesus might be a good idea in your life, you're not going to understand the depth of what God has done in the gospel through Christ. Every mouth will be stopped. Verse 19, Romans 3.19. Every mouth will be stopped And we will all, the whole world, will be held accountable to God. We have a life to live, a death to die, a judgment to face. Every mouth will be stopped. Burke Parsons is someone I follow on Twitter. And um, I'm just edified and challenged. And he, he, he wrote some time ago, If there's no preaching about sin and hell in your church, be assured of this. There's no gospel preaching in your church. You're talking about something else, which is a crying shame in light of the urgency of this day. That we all have an appointment with death. And nobody seems to be wanting, wanting to say the main thing about the comfort and peace that God gives as we face life in this world and a future death. John Stone Street. I would commend his podcast to you, Breakpoint. 
He really gives uh, some wonderful cultural analysis. And he was speaking this week about this new, Bible, uh, this, this new app. It's not a Bible app. It's a new app for your phone um, that deals with um, the subject of death, grappling with death. Um, is really as old as the fall, but a new generation of smartphone apps offers a modern twist. By com- combining predictive factors such as age, smoking habits, and body mass index, these apps predict when a user will give up the ghost, which is an amazing thing that they can know that. They don't. Only the Lord knows that. So to, to be fair, some of these death apps do more reminding than predicting. And one of those apps is entitled We Croak. And they send out five messages a day, just reminding people, hey, you're going to die in one form or another. And so Wired Magazine spiritual advice columnist Megan Geiblin received a question recently from from someone online, lately I've been feeling like life is passing me by. So I downloaded an app that reminds me that I'm, I'm going to die, like we needed a reminder. I thought it would help me accept my mortality and focus on what really matters, but it just makes me anxious. Is there some, something wrong with me? Is being anxious the point? Do you think these apps can be helpful? And then she gives a really a non-answer. What's our response to that? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't, you, don't, you don't need we croak to remind you that you're gonna die. You live in a dying world. but not without hope through Jesus Christ. You have a life to live, a death to die, and a judgment to face. I'm gonna go ahead and move us forward to the greatest paragraph in the Bible. Romans 3, 21 through 26. God's kindness is on display right now. It's on display, chapter 2, verse 4, calling you to repent, calling you to turn to him. So here's the, here's the greatest paragraph in the Bible because of what God has done. And we could really outline it in several ways, God's amazing grace, God giving to us what we could never deserve or earn or, or entitled to, the, that he would send his son, Jesus Christ. That the righteous, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. His redemption, we've been bought with a price. Verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift. Salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. His redemption is through Christ, which is a picture of buying us. He has bought us with his blood through his death on the cross. He's redeemed us from the slave market of sin to offer rescue into his kingdom. Notice um, in verse um, 25, he's a propitiation. We talked about the anger of God earlier in chapter 1, verse 18. 
The fact that Jesus Christ is our propitiation, it refers to his death on the cross and resurrection, his life, his obedience, his death, his resurrection as a propitiation for our sins, meaning that the wrath of God against us has been satisfied through what Christ has done. We're justified by faith in him alone, and so all boasting is gone. So we gather again to remind ourselves we're a room of people not of those men and women who have it all together. On the contrary, we are sinners redeemed and saved by the grace of God and that is our boast. And we would point you to him because he truly can save. There was a statement Alistair Begg mentioned this week that really encouraged me. If you're struggling and feeling beleaguered, weary, pressed down, put upon and opposed, There is one sure antidote. Fix your gaze humbly and believingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will save you now. He will be with you always. All of his promises are yes, yes, yes. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we come to the close of the service, it really is a call to surrender, to ask, are these things true? And if they are true, how do I need to act on them? Maybe this morning you've been challenged to look into the Bible. You've heard a lot of people talk about it, maybe disparagingly, but you've never read it for yourself. You've never looked at these truth claims that we've talked about this morning. Maybe the Lord has brought to your attention some other aspect of um, obedience that you need to surrender to in your life. Every time we hear the word of God, it's a call to obey him. And so to his throne we go right now and say, Lord, would you lead us in the remaining moments of this service to apply your word? It's not a time to defer. It's not a time to delay. It's a time to redeem this moment and to be honest with you and to surrender our lives to you. So would you you help us, Lord, to see what we need to see and do what we need to do, trusting you all the while. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.